You're listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Architects were very engaged historically in the properties of the material, like the quarry from which your stone came was a very traditional architectural concern. I'm getting stone from this particular quarry. I'm getting wood from this particular forest. I'm going to understand the meaning and significance, both for the aesthetics, the structural properties, the lifespan, and the environmental impact. That is a prerogative and I think a responsibility for architects today. And I think we can do it. Our guest today is Montreal-based systems thinker, Scott Francisco. Scott trained as an architect, and after more than 15 years in practice, he founded Pilot Projects, a systems thinking design consultancy. Scott became fascinated by the very thorny issue of sustainable timber sourcing, and he went on to found Cities for Forests, a global network which connects specifiers with forest communities. What's interesting about Scott's work is his holistic approach to the topic of timber, from global to local and back again. Today, we are talking to Scott about how architects can get a better grasp on specifying sustainable timber in their projects. Scott has been involved in co-creating a methodology for holistic assessment of sustainable timber, which goes beyond the standard certifications and provides a really useful template that designers can use when considering timber sourcing. This framework is directed primarily to public sector clients, but it is just as relevant for designers. Scott's obsession with all things timber began with a walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, which has a timber boardwalk for pedestrians. Curious about what timber species the boardwalk was made from, his research led him to Guyana. Scott, it's great to have you on the podcast. Where are you talking to us from today? Uh, Thank you, Hattie. Um, I am talking to you from Montreal. Just returned from New York City's Climate Week and um, back here in my home city. And you have a deep knowledge of North American forestry, which differs from the European context in several ways. And you're working globally now, so you have a great overview of global timber supply chains and the impacts of deforestation in different parts of the world. Yes. Our listeners are primarily in the UK, and you did some work in Glasgow around COP26, so I know you're familiar with some of the issues being discussed here about homegrown timber, even though the UK has only 13% forest cover, significantly below the European average. Over 90% of the UK's commercial timber harvest is softwood, primarily Sitka spruce. And in 2021, the ratio of imported timber to UK grown was over seven to one. So we import so much timber. So my first question is, how important really is local sourcing? A really lovely project that has won numerous awards recently here is Lee Bridge Library Pavilion by Studio Weave. And it's a modest timber extension to an Edwardian library in Walthamstow, and much of the timber for the library was salvaged from felled trees from London's streets and parks, and it was used for library paneling, 
joinery, even some of the furniture. So is this what every designer should be striving for? Local, local, local? Oh, wow. You've jumped right into the deep end here, and I'm glad you did. How important is local sourcing? The answer is some kind of yes and no. But really, in order to even answer this question, you have to really look at both local value chains and the, the bigger picture of, of the global construction sector and the kind of material demands that we're looking at over the coming couple of decades. And the supply side, where is wood grown in the world today? Where is it being harvested well? Where is it being harvested badly? Um, what are our prospects for the expansion of forests globally? Um, and how does the forest product sector play into that? So it's inevitably a global question. But if we start with the local, like, that sounds like a lovely project. I'm sorry that I hadn't seen it yet. And I will certainly immediately look it up because we love in our practice um, supporting local local wood and in particular local urban wood. And in fact, to jump to the the platform that you described that we've created called Sustainable Wood for Cities, one of the pathways is called local urban wood because we believe there's a real place for uh, dealing with wood waste that comes right out of a city and putting that to work right in that same city. So that is an amazing thing to do. And it act, activates all kinds of innovation locally. We see all kinds of co-benefits for using local urban wood that's not coming out of the industrial timber sector. So it's less efficient economically. The prices are likely to be higher, uh, but we're paying for something in that. And we're paying for the involvement of people that building our building relationships, again, skills. Uh, we really think it's a, it's a great stimulator for green jobs and that it can network from city to city where many cities around the world are starting to look at all this wood waste that they're generating and say, how can we use this? What are other cities doing? But here's the big but on that. That's not going to solve our material needs for the coming decades in terms of global city building. If you look at the demographics and say, look at the continent of Africa as one major center of, of urban expansion over the coming decades, we're talking about hundreds of millions of housing units to be built. And that's just that's that one region. If we do that in concrete and steel in the conventional fashion, that flies us way past our climate targets. Like there's no way to meet the Paris targets if we're building those cities in concrete and steel. Our best hope right now, given that demands would be to use sustainably sourced timber, that's not gonna come from local sources. Uh, there's no way that the local sources are have the capacity to meet that demand. If you just look at the UK, like you said, you've got, uh, fairly small amount of forest. It's growing. And I know there's a lot of work being done in the UK on expanding uh, forest capacity, uh, especially in Scotland. But even still, that's not going to meet the demands of the UK at this point in time. And if we say, well, we're projecting to increase the ratio of wood products in urban buildings significantly, because right now, if you look, take, take a panorama of a city in the UK and say how many of these buildings are built primarily with timber as a structural frame, pretty low, pretty low amount, but we're trying to increase that dramatically. So the, the reality is we're going to have to look at the global timber supply and find ways to make that trade as equitable and as environmentally low impact as possible. There's a few small points that I'll add. One is that moving timber around the world is not particularly costly in terms of carbon. We've been trained over the last 15 years to think locally about our materials but a, a badly sourced local material is worse than a well-sourced distant material. 
Um, now you have to look at the the whole LCA to say, well, what you know, how much, how much bad, how much good, and where where do those lie in that in that overall value chain? But usually, transportation is a pretty small cost. So if you're building something in Glasgow or you know London or wherever today in the UK, it's best to say where can this timber be sourced with the best overall environmental footprint, including of course carbon as a major piece. And it might be that it's from quite far away. So we might be taking it as read that timber is a sustainable material, but how sustainable is it really to build with? It's a great question that you're asking right now, because we just met at Climate Week, as I mentioned, and we convened a five-hour workshop of some of the world leaders on this topic, looking at some of the latest research and really reviewing our assumptions, our work, the consensus among the practitioners that are the most deeply engaged in this topic is that timber can be, in best of cases, carbon negative, meaning it, it sequesters carbon on net, even after all the um, outputs are accounted for. In most cases, it's lower carbon. It's not carbon negative on net, meaning it, it has a net carbon emission, uh, but it's still significantly better than alternatives of concrete and steel on a unit basis. So I think that's what's really important about this whole conversation is that it's not just making generalized assumptions about wood is good and it's fine and use as much of it as you want. It's rather, if we understand where the wood is coming from, what the forestry practices are, we can get a pretty good handle on what that LCA looks like for a given piece of wood. We really need to drive into that question and look at, at strengthening the life cycle analysis of wood, ability to use smaller pieces and different grades and types of wood integrated in that has a massive impact on the overall carbon impact. So from the leaders that are gathered together on this topic, there is a consensus that wood is going to be significantly and is today significantly less carbon emissions for a given unit than other materials at this point in time. And I think architects are going to play an increasing role in understanding the systems and all the dimensions of that so we can make sure that that does happen. We shouldn't just take it as a given um, that wood, wherever it comes from, is better than its alternatives. Um, but we can be confident that it is a very high-performing material on a carbon basis if it's sourced from the right sources. In the UK, most of the timber used in buildings is sourced from softwood plantations in the uh, in the UK or the EU, where it's grown as a crop, like Hattie mentioned, So rather than being from old-growth forests. So what's your view of this kind of forestry? I'm not a forester. My work, our practice, is about bringing people together into communities of practice. And I can say that for the last 15 years, Hattie, as you mentioned in my introduction, I really dedicated myself to listening to people from all over the planet with different types of expertise. And I, I'm very committed to listening to practitioners who work on the ground, who work in the sawmills, who work in the forest, as well as those that are writing papers, et cetera, because those aren't always the same people and they don't always have the same viewpoint. So back to your question about plantations. Plantations can be very destructive of natural environments where biodiversity has been displaced. Essentially, you end up with kind of sometimes people call them green deserts, where you have one type of tree in this case growing. It's really the same as industrial agriculture in that respect. On the other hand, the demands for timber are, are going to require some amount of plantation forestry to meet the volume demand globally that we're going to have. In other words, we can't produce enough timber with what we could call natural woodlands and forests globally when you look at the numbers that we're going to need to meet our um, housing and, and building demand. 
So then the question is, okay, where do plantations work well? Where do they have the least negative impact and even the most positive impact? So there's plantations that do in fact support biodiversity that are created actually with that in mind. And depending on where they sit geographically, they can have quite a few benefits just on their own terms. So then you, then you have to ask the question, well, what made it work there? It doesn't work that way everywhere. What kinds of conditions can be designed into those plantations? To allow for productivity, what's your rotation length going to be? That's a big one, right? Are, you, are we planning to cut these trees in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? There's quite a bit of work being done right now in Sweden on giving carbon credits to forest landowners who will delay the rotation. So that's just one example of how we, when we manage plantation forests, they can have vastly different outcomes for climate, for the environment. They also create habitat corridors, right? So these plantations can, again, especially if they're designed to do that, provide connective tissue between existing woodland forests, which then allow the biodiversity to take up a, a, a greater land area. A place where plantations can have a particularly devastating effect is in tropical forest areas like in Brazil. Now, Brazil is a country with some of the largest area of non-native timber plantations, in particular, say, eucalyptus. They're also growing pine in Brazil. It's non-native. Why are we so concerned about Brazil? And I'm using Brazil as an example. This happens in other countries like Ecuador and many other tropical countries, is that those plantation forests have, have actively displaced native tropical forests. Now we're dealing with a whole other level of, of biodiversity and soil impacts and, and carbon impacts. So the worst case scenario for a plantation would be, we look at a, a large area of, of intact tropical forest and we cut that forest down, pull out the valuable timber, sell it into the global market, burn the rest of it, okay? Now, what we've done up to this point is exactly what's being done for agriculture, for soy, for cattle ranching, et cetera. So this is the story of deforestation in the, in the Amazon. But then instead of, say, raising cattle, we say, you know what? Actually, eucalyptus will make us more money. So let's grow eucalyptus here. So eucalyptus, just like soy, just like palm oil, just like cattle ranching, just like many other crops, becomes a kind of a value proposition on economic terms that justifies the deforestation of native tropical forests. That's really bad. Tropical forest conservationists are particularly concerned about plantations in the global south where they have displaced tropical, native tropical forests. I should say that there's a very wide range of what we mean when we say plantation forestry, uh, quite a broad range. I really love it when I see examples where plantation type forestry is really intermixed. I'm, I'm showing you with my fingers here where you're, you're weaving together uh, native woodland. I'm thinking of the UK and then uh, I love the term woodlands that you use there. We don't tend to use that term, but a woodland conjures up the idea of biodiversity, right? You think of different sizes and ages of trees and, um, and plants and animals of a wide variety in a woodland. So native woodland intermixed with plantation forestry, how do you mix it? I mean, that is one of the great challenges of our future is to get that right. We know we're going to have to do both. We want to do both. We need economic models that will support both. And I can pivot that right to the architects who are listening to this. How do architects who are thoughtful, who make choices, who specify, who spend inordinate amounts of time thinking about the, the systems and the aesthetics and the, and the forms and the context of their buildings, how do they reach their thinking through the 
the site itself of the building and out to the source, the, the material shed from where the materials are coming from and really ask for that, right? Imagine if you're asking for ecological timber or you're asking for indigenous managed timber or you're asking for community managed timber and you're bringing that into the specification, into the discussion with the owners and the clients, into the discussion with the developer or the contractors who are gonna build the building. That's a very good segue because it brings me back to the question of, you know, a designer is sitting here in London, specify timber, is it different from the way someone sitting in Montreal is going to be specifying timber? I know one of the things you talk about as forests, as urban, we've touched on, urban, nearby, and far away. So yes. the geographic factor is one factor, but clearly it's not the only one, as you've already explained. But is the process that you go through going to be the same, no matter where you are? Again, yes and no. I think the concepts are the same which is, let's start with the, the first concept is consciousness of choices matter. Once we just accept that, that the choices that we make uh, with respect to timber do matter, well, then we have to say, okay, well, it matters, but what, what, are the, what is the sort of decision space I have, right? What, what choices do I have? Do I have any choice? Right now, I think many architects don't really feel like they actually have much of a choice. They might sort of love the idea of this, but when it comes to actually executing a project, it may seem and feel and, and be quite true that their choices are really limited. But then we have to go back to the awareness factor and say, well, perhaps I need to know more as an architect. I need to dig deeper into this because my choices feel limited. Maybe it's because I don't understand uh, enough or I don't know enough about the topic. Now, I'm going to pause there and say we created Sustainable Wood for Cities, the platform, to do this exact thing, to help architects, specifiers, municipal entities and procurement officials make better decisions. And the, order, the way to make a better decision is first to know what you're even talking about. Once you have a better awareness, that builds capacity, right? You can ask better questions. You can ask questions of suppliers. Perhaps there's suppliers that you didn't even know existed because they were serving a niche market. And now you're like, well, what about reclaimed? What about reclaimed wood? Well, circularity, of course, is becoming extremely popular as a term, uh, which is great. And that implies the, the idea of, of continued use and reuse and and innovation and ups, upcycling, et cetera, of, of materials. So let's put timber into that and say, is there a source wherein I could actually get timber that's already had a, a life a life of use and I'm going to put it to use again and I'm going to upcycle it? Perhaps that means I need to plane it down. And, you know, if it's coming from an old building, am I willing to pay for the timber being denailed, <laughs> um, to use a, 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 an important term, and, and reshaped? That's going to be more costly almost certainly right now than just buying a sort of off-the-shelf, fresh-cut timber product. But I'm extending the life cycle of that wood. So just the awareness of it. And then knowing, well, okay, ooh, suddenly I realized there's five suppliers in the, in the Glasgow area that actually can supply reclaimed wood. Uh, that's amazing. Well, I didn't know about those before. So I'm asking those questions. Now I can compare that. And using our platform, this is what we've tried to support, is to be able to compare that to other alternatives, which would be like, okay, what about comparing reclaimed lumber with local urban lumber? Okay, now for, for a small project, say like a cafe interior or a small a retrofit, those are both great choices. So, but now I'm doing a, a three-story addition on top of a, an, old, an older building and I need a structural frame. I'm almost certainly not going to be doing that out of reclaimed or local urban salvage lumber. And the mass timber movement has allowed us to think about composites of materials and wood types 
that we wouldn't have been able to achieve uh, without that technology. Most of the listeners here will be familiar with CLT. In that cross-laminated timber, there is room and, and possibility to put lower grades of timber on the interior cores. Your exterior layers are the layers that have the greatest stress, and they require a very high grade of consistent timber so that it will meet the structural demands. But the more layers you have, the more opportunities you have to actually put something in the middle of that sandwich. And in fact, the, the, the manufacturers of mass timber products and CLT right now, are, they're doing that already. They're taking their trees and they're grading their own wood and they're using the lowest grade of wood for those interior cores. So they're already doing that, which is great because that maximizes the yield. It allows them to use more of the tree. And we're seeing increases in efficiency you know, as the technology develops. But zoom forward, let's say five years, 10 years, we're looking at a future where think of all of those wood products that we have today available and, and let's reconstitute them into the highest and best use of all the fiber that we have available to us, right? So short rotation trees, longer rotation trees, natural trees grown in urban contexts, reused timber. All of those could be, in, in theory, constituted into high quality mass timber building products that could use to build uh, tall, high density buildings. The technology is essentially there. Uh, we haven't developed the industry that's yet quite capable of doing that. But architects occupy such an important position here. Now, when we specify, for example, a mass bamboo building frame, mass timber bamboo, it's out there, it's available, just coming out to the, onto the market. It's like reinforced concrete in 1890, right? It was there, but you had to like, you had to work pretty hard to get it. Anyway, so architects can play a huge role. In some cases, we can actually construct a value chain for a particular building. As I'm guessing the architect you referred to on that London project probably did. That, was, that sounds like quite a lot of work to pull that off, but they did it. Amazing. Because what we're, I think, as architects in the UK mostly used to doing is, is specifying a particular species, mm. uh, for, 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 well, uh, where it's where it's not just softwood for sort of structure, uh, maybe for it's like cedar for cladding or oak for beams or uh, maybe an Oroco veneer on some joinery. So we tend to rely a lot on just saying that it's got FSC certification or there's also PEFC kind of relying on these certification systems to assure us of its sustainability how reliable do you think those systems of certification are and then because there's also sort of other issues like that that, that you touch on in the well that, that you run through in the sustainable wood for cities framework what, what, what are the other things we need to think about and i'm so glad you brought up certification because it's it's actually the number one pathway so uh for the listeners here the sustainable wood for cities has what we call eight pathways for sustainable wood sourcing. Those pathways came from years of conversations with foresters, conservationists, architects, engineers. So at this point, we feel like they're quite comprehensive. We know that nothing's perfect, but it's our framework. And the first pathway is certification. The second one is social forestry. The third one, I believe, if I get the order right, is species and grade selection. Then we go to strategic geography. We have local urban wood, manufacturing efficiency, reused and long life, reuse and long life wood, and then net carbon accounting. So I believe those are the eight pathways. The top of the list, certification. So certification systems, um, which have been around for several, three, maybe now almost four decades, especially the FSC, which, which, which developed really as, as, as the premier kind of most comprehensive certification system. 
and now especially for wood coming from tropical sources, but there's others uh, which are also very good. It's kind of a one-stop shop, right? And if the certification system is doing its job and you read its criteria, it's a good way to get a kind of a quick and relatively easy assurance that the wood is coming from a, I'm gonna use this word in quotes, you can't see my air quotes, sustainable quote unquote source. Okay, now I put that in quotes because the reality is that they're not all equal. And it's the, 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 the sort of the dark side of it is if you go into using certified wood unconsciously and just say, well, if it's certified, it must be okay. You may be getting certified wood that doesn't have a very high standard in some cases. You may be getting wood from a certification system where it's got a history of being gamed a little bit or that there's some corruption built into the system, et cetera. And, and that's true and, and, and kind of a tragic reality. Our point is that we should still support certification and we should work together to making it better. So using it as a criteria for sustainable sourcing, we think is really important. Help those certification systems do their job and hold them accountable. We've worked a lot with tropical forestry and communities in the tropics who have gone to tremendous efforts to have their forest certified under, in particular, the FSC system. And they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, which they didn't have, and they've basically borrowed against their future. They've done the hard work of taking the inventory of the forest, creating management plans, sticking to those management plans, getting audits done on an annual basis. I mean, it is a huge amount of work to have a forest uh, certified under the FSC system. and Unfortunately, right now, the market, the markup, the added value to that timber on the market is extremely low, if not zero. So the discouragement of these communities who have spent so much time and effort and the market is not responding by paying them any kind of a premium for their wood, which in terms of the species and, and the quality of the wood may be identical to their neighbor who hasn't certified their forest. So it's not so much that certified wood means like the wood is better in quality. It, it may be. I mean, that's another question, right? But if someone is paying the same per cubic meter for, uh, for the Iroko from one forest, who is basically doing a slapshot slap job of managing their forest and basically ultimately just cutting it all down versus the community over here who's only taking you know one tree per acre every 25 years, getting rid of all the roads after they're done, following all the rules, shouldn't we be paying a premium for that? The answer has to be yes, if we believe in sustainable materials, we've got to be able and willing to pay a premium. And again, this is a place where architects can come in. If they've done their homework on the certification system, and our, and our, our platform helps you do that homework. It talks about the, you know, the sources of information and, and so forth. So let's say I say, I'm going to use, we're going to use FSC certified wood, and that's the only thing we're going to do. Now, we would recommend you go further than that, but that's a, that's a great first step. Do your homework. What is the system saying about the sustainability of, of the production? Is the supply chain and chain of custody fully managed and vetted so that you know that you're getting the certified wood that you've paid for? And are you willing to pay more? And the answer needs to be yes, I'm willing to pay more. I don't know if that's 1%, half a percent, 5%, 10%. Um, that's a good question for us to be asking. George, you also mentioned something at the beginning about species and, and sort of the tendency of, of architects and, and even the end users and customers to, to specify a species, right? So, you know, we, we like to think at least we all kind of know what certain species are good for and, and how they look and what they do, et cetera. So it becomes quite 
in a sense, easy to just rely on that basic knowledge. Like, let's use white oak for the paneling or something like that. And, you know, that might be all we ask for. <laughs> and a grade. Oh, we want, we want uh, you know, grade A, appearance grade, grade A, white oak for this paneling. That's actually a really bad way to specify wood from a sustainability point of view, because you haven't asked for anything that, that tells us anything about the origin or the impacts of that wood. And in fact, you've done the opposite by specifying a high grade. You've actually put the highest possible demands on the forest for that wood because you're specifying high grade. Perhaps you haven't mentioned the lengths that you're going to need. So you might need only three foot lengths for your panels, but you've to make it easy on your builder, you've they're going to get uh, nine, eight, eight or nine foot boards. So our, our sloppiness with specification has a huge impact on the on the overall footprint of our use of wood. So waste, not thinking about the species, and maybe white oak isn't a great species in, in terms of what's available right now. And maybe there's three or four other species that would look just as nice. They're lesser known and lesser used, and they help foresters diversify their forest, right? So we put species and grade selection as our third pathway because when when the designer is engaged in that question on the species they say well look what would what would be a good species of lesser impact on tropical species that's often the ones that we don't already know about and by the way if you're willing to be just a tiny bit flexible with the criteria a little flexibility on that can actually go a long way for sustainable outcomes so thinking about the grade for example, a, a large clear piece of not free wood is probably probably represents 5% at most of the yield of the whole tree. So if that's all anyone's asking for, that's terrible. That's devastating. Give me the wood with knots in it. I don't need it. It's for the back of the cabinet. Uh, give me short pieces. Short pieces are great because I'm making stair treads, right? I don't need anything longer than 36 inches. So the, the sawmill is like, jumping for joy with the specification because they've got a huge stack of 38 inch pieces of wood that they didn't know what they could do with and that are destined for the landfill or the fireplace and you've just given them a value you've taken that carbon essentially out of the atmosphere locked it in long term and you've created a, a, a new economic revenue stream uh, as well well the step beyond just sort of specifying everything and kind of being confident about the right specification and certification of actually kind of getting involved with the, the sort of actual sourcing of, uh, of timber. It's not something that typically architects would do and there's a few sort of barriers towards doing that. I guess one of them would be convincing your client that it's worth doing and, and worth well, paying you for your time, hopefully. Um, if you get in, in into the sort of logistics of sawmills and drying times and transport, if, if that all ends up delaying the contractor, the client could be on the hook financially for that. Uh, if yes. there's something wrong with that specific timber, that's on the architect rather than the contractor. Is, is that different? Does it work differently in North America, do you think? Fundamentally, it doesn't work. It's no different. All of the basic problems you're mentioning are problems in North America as well. In fact, one of my um, you know, colleagues, a well-known architect uh, based in Toronto from Moriyama Tashimi Architects, who have been leaders in this space and, and created a few just award-winning, beautiful mass timber buildings in the city of Toronto. Carol Phillips is her name, and she's just a, an amazing architect with huge experience in this. These are the architects that are doing it and have been doing it for well over 10 years now. And she said this in, in one of our um, community of practice conversations, like, 
you know, most architects would say they just don't have time for this. They don't have the, they don't have the capacity. They're at, they're already at max um, in terms of what they're being asked to do. But I don't see it as being a, a liability question, literally speaking, if architects are doing the work that they already do, like if the paneling all, you know, you choose the wrong species and the paneling all warps, right? Okay. Yeah, the, that's right. You are taking on some liability for that. But that's what architects do. We do that for our clients. And we, if what architects were delivering were just pre-cooked solutions that were all locked and loaded and ready to go, then we wouldn't need architects. So I think it's a question, it's an existential question for architects is where is their energy going to be applied? So if we just took all of the energy that's being used on, on creative form making and apply that to this, which is actually going to change the world for the better and make better environments for people to live in and have these ripple effects around the world. We have plenty of capacity to do this work. And I, and I don't think it's out of the you know, valid argument would be, well, that's just not, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what architects do. I don't agree. It historically is what architects did. Architects were very engaged historically in the properties of the material, like the quarry from which your stone came was a very traditional architectural concern, right? I'm getting stone from this particular quarry. Well, it's the same thing as I'm getting wood from this particular forest. And I'm going to take a sort of responsibility. I'm going to understand the meaning and significance, both for the aesthetics, the structural properties, the lifespan, and the environmental impact. That is a prerogative and I think a responsibility for architects today. And I think we can do it. I wanted to ask about your Cities for Forests program. Tell us about it and why did you decide to focus your efforts specifically on this city partnership with forests? What do you think the impact is that you can have by doing that? So Cities for Forests uh, was co-founded by my team at Pilot Projects Design Collective and the World Resources Institute. Our practice was really kind of the, the smaller strategic focus on this dynamic between cities and forest materials. So this actually goes back to the Brooklyn Bridge Forest, which you mentioned, Hattie. You know, we worked for years with, with the city of New York and with others in the city to try to get this project executed, which it hasn't been. So it's been sort of for years, it won, the, it won this international design competition hosted by the city. But the core idea there was that cities have enormous power to influence the systems that are having these impacts. Okay, on forests, if we want to take that one category, but certainly on, on the landscape of the planet. And the core idea of cities for forests was cities impact forests. And then back to that inner, nearby, far away, the inner forests for cities are the ones that are literally inside of their municipal boundary. The nearby, we, we don't have a strict geographical boundary, but we say within a few hundred kilometers of a city, but often those are associated with watersheds, recreation areas. They're places that, that residents of cities go and use. And then the faraway forest is any place in the world there where a city is impacting through food production, other goods and services that are coming in, of course, climate. So we just, we develop cities for forests to just proactively engage with all of those forest levels and help cities develop policies and programs, pilots to showcase that to the world. We have a hundred cities in the network. 
Are any UK cities signed on? Yes. Manchester was one of our first cities to sign on. London is not officially signed on, but we have the, the mayor of London having signed our call to action document. Glasgow is, is another important one. Uh, we've done some tree woodland restorations in the Greenbelt in Enfield. And London there's a, is, a, is a hotspot of mass timber innovation, although it's been significantly hampered by some of the new regulations that came after the, uh, the Grenfell fire. So at the UIA Congress in Copenhagen, you had a floating pavilion made out of timber sourced from Mozambique. And you, you actually had the person who manages that for us there that day. So what's the rationale for sourcing timber from the global south for a pavilion like that? As part of our Cities for Forest initiative, we have something called the Partner Forest Program. And that idea is a, a very direct partnership between a city and a community forest, a wood producing community in the tropics, which is showing conservation benefits. We call it conservation timber. And what conservation timber means is timber that is supporting conservation activities on the ground in a particular place. And in particular, the tropics is where we are really focused. So what does that look like on the ground? That is timber that is coming from a forest that is being well-managed, almost always certified. Now, when you buy that wood from wherever you are in the world, you're sending a market signal to that community that we value your product and we're willing to pay for it. And what you're paying for is conservation. And that was the case with the, the wood from Mozambique, which came from a longstanding community forest operation called Levis Forest in um, northern Mozambique. Paris, uh, after some pressure by, by, by us and, and others organizations um, over the last five years, has reopened their ability to buy tropical wood if it comes from a certified and well-managed and sustainable source. And that's shown in two major infrastructure projects, one being the Olympic Village, which is being built right now. And so they've actually ordered conservation timber for part of the Olympic Village. And the other is the Pont des Arts, which is uh, perhaps one of the most famous bridges in the world and in Paris the, with a, a wooden deck on a, a wrought iron frame that goes back to the early 1800s. It's been rebuilt a few times, but they're replacing that deck right now with conservation timber from the Congo Basin. So the bottom line is local is not always the answer. Ab absolutely. It, it, it's a much more nuanced. We've got to break out of that thinking. We ha it's, it's, I actually think, and we, we started with that question, and I think it's, it's, it's a good one to come back to, and that is we live in a globally interconnected world, and we're never not going to from this point forward. So in terms, in terms of your own journey, why did you leave architecture and, and move into this systems approach to, to change making? My history is I went to, I started my undergraduate professional degree in architecture in the University of Toronto. And I just, I mean, fell in love with the, with the education and practice of architecture from day one. I, I started the program not knowing if I was going to even do a whole year. And within a few weeks, I knew this is just like so, so perfect for me. Um, I got quite interested in how systems thinking was really a kind of design practice in itself that wasn't fully and maybe even well represented in architectural practice. Even though I would say that architecture may be the very best place to learn systems thinking. After graduating, I moved to New York and worked 
in several firms. And I just had it all through the through that time period in the back of my mind that I wanted to take my practice into a different territory, open it up. And I think it was the Brooklyn Bridge Forest project actually that sealed the deal. As I realized if I was going to do this project, it wasn't going to happen through through a conventional architectural practice. I mean, I spent years working on trying to understand the supply chain and now what we call the value chain of of timber so that I could be speak somewhat intelligently about that. And so I had to basically create a new kind of profession for myself to do that. And that's when I eventually launched pilot projects. And we continue to collaborate with architects, but in every case, we're thinking about the context in its fullest sense that includes all the way out to where materials come from. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you. That was thank great. Thank you so much, Hattie. And thank you, George. That was, those were great questions. And uh, yeah, hope to continue the conversation. And of course, uh, not that hard to find. So if listeners have particular questions or, or want to look at the Sustainable Wood for Cities platform, uh, that can be seen at citywoodguide.com. Um, but uh, happy to answer any questions. So please, everyone, feel free to reach out to us. In our next episode, we will be speaking to two guests, Julia Barfield of Marks Barfield Architects and Zoe Watson on behalf of Architects Declare. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcasts where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks. Thanks.